Thank you, Gracie. Didn't you do a great job with a, a, a section of scripture that is as full and dense and rich and as important as any that we have. We are, church, in the middle of this series on the book of Colossians. We've been talking about the concept of following Jesus as something more than just chasing after him. This is not a game of, uh, of hide-and-seek where you go running in the direction of something, elusive, hoping to identify it. It's more like that old game of sardines, which is hide-and-seek in reverse. Remember sardines, those of you who played it? When you find the person you're looking for, instead of calling them out, you jump in. And you, and, and you rest in that spot with them. And at the end of the game, everybody is together in one large, huddled, giggling ass of those who've been found. Our pursuit of God is not some running in the darkness after something elusive. It's the huddling together in the masses of those who have enjoyed what it means to be hidden with Christ in God. That is the, the masterful language of the book of Colossians, that we are hidden with Christ in God. We're going to continue on our series this morning by focusing on a single word that appears in Colossians in chapter 2. It, it's a word that looms large, and it's a word that has as much impact today as it did 2,000 years ago when the words were first read and received. The word is, are you ready for it? Deceit. Deceit. Yeah, it's not what you thought, right? It's not one of those words that looks good on a banner that we hang on our sign, but it's a word that certainly has a lot of currency for us right now. Just as a mental exercise, think in your head to, to some moment in your past where you felt like you were deceived by a family member, by a friend, by a colleague, a co-worker. Chances are that for at least one or two people, the person who deceived you is in the room. Don't look at them right now. Okay, don't, don't, we don't want to stir that up. But with that word in mind, I want you to listen to what Paul says, Colossians 2, verse 8. Colossians 2, 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. Or, as it is on the screen, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. These things that depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world, whatever that is, rather than on Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. We've mentioned this before, but whenever you get to a passage of Scripture and you see a phrase that appears different in three or four different translations of English... Usually what that means is underneath it, there is a word or an expression that is so rich, um, so nuanced, so varied in meaning that we couldn't really capture it in one phrase. And so you see the translators all trying different ways of coming at this. What is it? These hollow philosophies, these deceptive thoughts, these human traditions. The, the word behind it is the word apates, apates. Try saying that, apates. Doesn't that sound nice? It sounds like a good apates. Deceit, on the other hand, doesn't sound nice. And so forget how nice it sounds in Greek. It is not nice at all. Deceit, being led astray, being misled, causing somebody to wonder or stumble. Deceit. You think of any examples in your life? Hmm. I stumbled across one this week. 
About two and a half weeks ago, Shoppers Drug Mart was running a two-for-one sale on President's Choice chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> so I bought four bags. I put them in the basement pantry down there beside the vegetables. So nobody looks beside the vegetables. They'll be, they'll be fine there. I went down there this week, and what were there? Three completely empty bags still sitting there, and one bag with only one row remaining on the bottom. Who ate the cookies? Not an answer. Nothing, nothing. <laughs> that is, that's small deceit. But there are life-altering deceits as well. 1931. A boy was born in a small town in Indiana. Grows up in the middle of extreme poverty. He is bullied relentlessly. And he turns eventually to religion for comfort. And over the course of the coming years, he, he surrenders his life to full-time ministry. He's ordained in multiple different denominations. He starts his own congregation. Eventually, that congregation relocates itself in San Francisco, where it grows in number and influence. People are compelled by him, his teaching, his charisma. And these aren't just sheep, like gentle, easily led folk. These were smart people, educated, thoughtful people, all drawn to the movement. Eventually, this preacher convinced the entire community, his whole church, 900 people, to move to another country and reestablish their church. 1978, he persuaded that group, 906 of them, to take their own lives by drinking a form of Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. Jim Jones, the Jonestown Massacre, one of the most chilling events in modern religious history. And it's easy to read a story of deception like that, dramatic and, and heart-wrenching, and think that there must have been something wrong with the people who were so easily led astray. How could they fall victim to that kind of malevolent influence? But the hard reality, I think, is that we are all susceptible to being deceived. Big conspiracies and, and deceits, maybe we think they're easier to spot. But, but what about the philosophies, the, the worldviews, the ideologies and opinions that surround us every day? We're inundated by them. We don't question them. They're like, they're like the water that we swim in and the air that we breathe. How about philosophies like materialism, consumerism? You ever been led astray in your life by the philosophy that says acquiring the latest things, accumulating the most wealth, these are the real keys to joy and security and, and peace in the world? That is the core message of every marketing strategy out there. Your life is empty. This thing will fill it. I need sunlight in my dishes. That will make me joyful. And so the list goes on. How about the philosophy of success? We are in the GTA. I mean, we are right at the epicenter. We are surrounded by world-class universities, by market-leading industries, by multinational businesses. And you can't help but feel their influence everywhere. Is success, is, is that the golden ticket? How about postmodernism? That philosophy that says, hey, there's no thing out there that's real and true. Truth is something that, that you own and you own and you own. We all have our truths. And if your truth and my truth come into conflict and they don't agree, that's okay. Uh, because we're all just trying to, 
to get along. Everyone's truth is valid. How about nationalism? As we see it rearing its head in nations all around the world. Or progressivism. Or conservatism. And that's just the isms. And that list could get bigger and bigger. There is no shortage of philosophies and opinions and ideologies that will compete for our loyalty and try to draw us in. And if we're being honest, I think we need to acknowledge that we are very easily led astray by all of those voices. But then there's this ancient text, this little, this little text that, that Gracie read so well for us, that highlights the very concern that's at the heart of it, the concern that we're being deceived. The philosophies may be different, but the principle is the same. If you want to be the kind of person who is resolute and firm and not not held captive by, by every whim or idea that comes down the pipeline, if you want to be the kind of person who can live wisely without being ensnared by destructive things in the world, if you want to be the kind of person who can detect deceit, the alarm bells go off, and then with deep inner confidence can walk forward in the right way, if you want any of those things, then these words from Colossians, they're for you. Let's jump right in. Open your Bibles, Colossians 2, verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes, Colossians 2, 4, I'm going to tell you this. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So that's the reason Paul's writing. And then we come to the scripture we read just a few minutes ago. In verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. These things that depend more on human tradition, elemental spiritual forces, and not on Christ. So for a minute, let's, let's do what, what we should always do, what, what we need to do faithfully in order to receive the word of God wisely and well in our lives. Let's understand what God was saying to those who first heard his words. And then... Let's lean in close and understand what he's saying to us today. Let's first, let's transport ourselves back to the world of the New Testament. Let's understand the danger of deceit because things in that world look drastically different than they do today. They don't have on staff in their little house churches multiple pastors with seminary degrees. There were no seminaries. There were no Bible studies that you could join. There were no Bible apps on their phones. There were no sermons you could download on podcasts. Christianity is just getting started. It wasn't passed down to you from your parents or your grandparents. Christianity is just getting going. Nobody attended Sunday school when they were kids. Christian theology is just being formed. In fact, think about this moment. The place that you're sitting today, this, this little church, Mississauga City Baptist Church, is older right now than the entire Christian movement was when Paul first wrote these words to the church in Colossus. It was brand new. The letter was written before there was a New Testament. Paul's letters exist before the Gospels exist. So the Colossian Christians, they couldn't study Jesus' parables or read his sermons because they hadn't been written down and circulated yet. And there must have been times when life in the early church felt like the Wild West. I mean, there's part of it that's good, that's entrepreneurial, where we're pioneers blazing a new trail in the world, but there's part of it that just might have, must have feel like there were dangers lurking around every corner. 
And so there's these, these new young Christians who are surrounded by all of these competing ideas and, and religions and philosophies and what the, what the New Testament often calls idols. It's hard to know what's true and what's not true in that context. That's the world of the New Testament. What about our world? In some ways it feels like the same, but in many ways, we're in exactly the opposite place. We have more information than we possibly know what to do with. Right now, I looked it up this morning. There are 51 million YouTube channels generating content. So that now there are 2 billion videos on YouTube downloaded, or 1 billion videos downloaded every day by its more than 2 billion member audience. We were so excited when we got our channel up there. So we could put on the sign, hey, we're one in 51 million. <laughs> and add to that all of the other gateways through which we get content. There are over 2 million new co- podcasts being generated on a month-by-month basis. There are over 1 billion TikTok videos watched every day. Every day. Now, most of them are just cats playing the piano or something ludicrous like that. But, but amidst all of the frivolous stuff, there are still, there's a myriad of ideas and opinions and philosophies all being circulated. You think about it, it feels a little bit like the Wild West all over again, doesn't it? Anyone can broadcast their views to the whole world. There's no gatekeepers. If the whole thing is undergirded by this simple idea that what you say is true because it's true for you, what I say is true because it's true for me, then how can you possibly ferret out what might actually be true in the middle of all of that? No gatekeepers. The whole thing is run by algorithms. You knew this, right? Everything, all social media, algorithms, complicated little bits of code that are designed to serve you up content with one purpose and one purpose only, to keep you glued to the screen. The longer you're glued to the screen, the more advertisements they can serve you, the more they make money. Algorithms don't care about your spiritual or your mental or your emotional health. They just want to keep you glued to your screen. Here's the point. We are, day by day, we are confronted, confounded, in fact, by countless opportunities that could lead us astray. What do we do? Could it be that Paul's words are more important now than ever? Do not be, do not be deceived. Paul said, don't, don't be taken captive. How do we do that? Avoid deception, navigate this world with so many competing ideas. Well, here's the answer that Paul gives. Here's how we fight the deception. Let's read verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Here it is. To avoid deception, you need to sink your roots down deep. Deep into what? Deep into Christ. In order to not be taken captive by a multitude of ideas and philosophies and opinions, you need to be rooted and built up in him. So we need to talk about this this legendary, this legendary, beautiful metaphor of what it means to be rooted in Christ. And those of you who have kind of grown up in the church, you've heard this before. And like most metaphors, 
there is a risk that either it's misunderstood or it becomes cliched. So this morning, if you'll, if you'll pardon the pun, we're going to dig a little deeper into this metaphor of what it means to be rooted in Christ. Roots, you know, comprise at least one-third of the life of, of any botanical structure, a tree, a plant, a flower. So much of the life and energy of a plant is hidden. It's what happens underneath the soil that determines the health of what we see. It's our spiritual roots that determine our spiritual health. Just as a plant's physical roots determine the health of the, of the leaves and the flowers that it gives birth to. We need to seek or sink down roots deeply into this. Let's talk about the two things that root structures do. If I can remember biology. Grade 12. Here's the first thing. Roots are responsible for nourishing the plant. How many of you would say, in fact, that you have killed every plant ever given to you? Hands up. Keep me in good company. My people. There you are. Hands up of you, those of you who are, are green thumbs. You just, you can, if it, if it lives, it will live better with you. A few of you. Hands up those of you who don't like putting your hands up in worship. Okay. Some of you can grow anything, I realize. God's chosen ones. And, and you look at us who are failures and say, it's, it's just a succulent, right? Anybody can take, take care of it. A, a brain-dead animal can keep a succulent alive. Don't underestimate my ability to kill any living thing. Did I water it too much? Not enough. Did I not love it and say the right things to it before bed? Whatever it is. But here's the deal. Whenever there is a problem with what's going on in the external, visible part of the plant, chances are it can be traced back to what's going on in that place we don't see, to the roots, to the nourishment. Is the plant getting what it needs, the water and nutrients that keep it thriving? That's the job of the roots. Karina loves lilacs. Yeah. Years ago, I went to the nursery. We moved into our new home, and and I wanted to plant a lilac bush. And so I, I got them to pick one out for me, and I, I did everything. I mean, green thumbs, I did everything right. I dug the hole. I put in the fresh soil. I put in the fertilizer. I topped it up. I watered it. I tamped it down. I looked after it. No flowers. No flowers. Where are those beautiful purple, white flowers, that fragrance? went back to the nursery and said, I, I think you gave me a dud. I got the world's only non-flowering lilac bush. You know what they said? Um, you got to wait some time. The first two or three years, that plant is busy doing what? Putting down roots. Establishing an elaborate root system. And then when it's healthy and strong, then the flowers appear. Turns out I planted our lilac bush right next to a railway tie soaked in creosilk. So I don't know that we ever got the flowers out of that we wanted. How about us? Are we getting the nourishment that we need? Or to say it another way, where are we getting our nourishment? What is it that we're consuming? One way of understanding the things that we're consuming in our lives is by looking at the fruit. The same way you would analyze a plant and say, well, here's what's going on in the root system. You can look at a life and say, well, here's what's going on in the root system. Can you trace it back? Are you an impatient person? 
Is impatience one of the fruits of your life? Do you spend far too many hours in your day honking at cars in front of you? Does the GTA traffic make you yell phrases inside your car that would make your pastor blush on Sunday? Do you have a hard time sitting still for any length of time? This is agony for you Sunday mornings. And you endure the agony for the sake of Christ. Thank you for enduring this agony for the sake of Jesus. Do you have a hard time focusing for any length of time? You can trace that back to the roots in your life. Let me give you an example. For those of you in in maybe a, a newer generation, if you have spent much of your time being nourished by content that comes on a device, on a phone, a screen, an iPad. Realize that you are being nourished by a technology that is designed at its most basic level to try and stimulate a dopamine response in your brain every eight seconds. That's the gold standard goal for an app developer, for a content creator. Every eight seconds, a little release a little burst of of dopamine, the the happy chemical of the brain. Why? The goal is to keep your eyes glued to the screen. The unfortunate byproduct is if every eight seconds you don't get another rush, you get agitated, impatient, unable to focus. See, it used to be that attention span, we knew it, we gauged it, we could measure it and test it. it, was about seven minutes. The classic book, Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Seven minutes, not coincidentally, happened to be exactly the amount of time between commercials on broadcast TV. And the previous generation were raised on broadcast TV. The credits roll, you watch seven minutes, and then it's time for a break from our sponsors. The window has narrowed. Are you an impatient person? Are you an angry person? Can you trace that back? to the nourishment that your roots are bringing into your life? Are you getting your nourishment from angry people on the news, from bitter people on Twitter, from cynical, jaded people who can only see the world through corrosive eyes? Are you an anxious person? Well, tell me, what what is it that you're feeding your brain? What do you do with your free moments? Where does your nourishment come from? Apostle Paul says that that in order to to armor ourselves for this world of so many ideas competing for our loyalty, that we need to be rooted. It can all be found in Christ, he says. And I know we've mentioned that before, that turn of phrase, in Christ. But I'm going to blaze through this scripture passage. And I want you to count with me just how many times Paul uses the phrase, in him, and with him. Just listen for it. We're going to read Colossians 2. We're just going to plow through verses 9 through to, to 14 or so. For, you can count with me, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. You understand what's getting on there. This is not biology. This is about a covenant. Your relationship with God is solidified in Christ. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him. There's four in baptism 
in which you were also raised with him through your faith. There's five in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ and gave us the forgiveness of sins. I count six. Did you get six in that little passage? Paul is making a point and he's making it painfully obvious. I know this is basic stuff. Of course, as Christians, we should be getting our nourishment from Christ and Christ alone. But allow me just to be a pastor for a second and ask you this hard question. Is it really true? I mean, is it really true for you, for me? Is that really where you're getting your nourishment? And if we're honest for a second, maybe we have to admit that that we spend more time scrolling social media or reading newspapers or digesting content on screens than we ever do seeking solitude with Jesus. I mean, if you added up all of the hours that you spend consuming content, it doesn't have to be online, not everybody's online, in print, on TV, does that vastly outweigh your spiritual practices? your times of intentional communion with Jesus. I'm not trying to bring guilt or shame. God's love for you is not contingent on what you do. But let's let's be honest with ourselves here and just say, could it be that a lot of us are malnourished? That we are spiritually and emotionally well-nourished, malnourished. When we look at the world and we say, well, why is it, that Jesus' followers don't look or act or feel different than anybody else in the world? Well, part of the answer is this, that we live on the same diet. We're nourished by the same stuff. Our fruit, the fruit of our lives, is a representation of the soil in which we're rooted. And if we're rooted in the same soil, if we are nurtured on the same nutrients, is it any wonder that we produce the same fruit? And among the fruits is that it's easy to be deceived. Easy to be misled. The very beginning of of his ministry, Jesus does what he does at many points during his ministry. He draws himself aside for a time of silent reflection and communion with God. He's going to get the roots deep into the soil of God in his life. And within moments, it seems, of, of his initiative, he's going to do that. Who appears on the radar for him? The great old adversary himself, wily old Satan, because Satan could care less for people that are already distracted and disillusioned and have given up on God. But the minute you try and redirect your life towards setting down roots into the depths of God, then he'll be there, throwing up every obstacle, distraction, or stimulus that will drive you away. And he does it with Jesus. So the tempter comes to Jesus and says, if you're the son of God, you can command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answered, it is written. You know these words. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus fights deception by talking about nourishment. He is nourished by the words of God. Imagine being the kind of person who can stand firm against deception because you are deeply nourished by the presence and the very words of God. Imagine giving up a few hours a week 
a few hours of consuming all that other content, and instead saying, I'm going to spend that time rooting myself deeply in Jesus. I will not be deceived anymore. I'm going to feed myself on the diet intended for God's people. If my memories of 12th grade biology are correct, the the other function of, of a root system in a plant is to keep the plant grounded and stable. The roots are the foundation structure of the plant. They hold everything in place. And you see just how intricate that system is anytime we have to clean up in the aftermath of a, of a massive storm event, you know, when the winds really start howling and the trees come down and you see that root ball out of the ground and you realize how extensive it was to be able to hold that enormous structure in place. The roots have a function that is foundational of holding us in place. I started my ministry, as Sheldon did, as many of us did years ago, working with students in youth ministry. Shout out to junior high and senior high students. Uh, it all starts with you. I think maybe it all ends with you too. We, we, we love what you do. Uh, it's meant that over the course of my career, I have probably attended or led or been involved in oh, 50 or more different camping experiences or youth retreat experiences. They're just such a big part of student ministry. I've witnessed a whole lot at those retreats and on those camps. One of the things I have witnessed is just how often junior and senior high school boys will attempt, will live with the deceptive illusion that they can cover days of not showering and ingesting bad food and sleeping together in a tight cabin. They can cover it all with Axe body spray. (laughs) Well, if I never have to walk into another cabin filled with the smell of Axe body spray and teenage sweat, I'll be good with that. But... But there's something else that I've met, uh, that I witnessed almost every time we were involved in one of those retreats or camping experiences. There would be a group of students who experienced a kind of spiritual awakening. The light goes on for them. And, and as we made our way home on the bus or in cars, I would hear them talk with excitement about their faith and about Jesus and their desire to follow him. And some of them would say, you know, when I get home, I'm going to throw away all of my secular music. That's how old we are. Used to be music was something that you could hold, CDs, vinyl, and then when you didn't want it anymore, you threw it away. But they're going to get rid of their secular music. They're talking about breaking up with a non-Christian girlfriend or boyfriend. Maybe they're going to join Bible study. They're going to try and come to church. Oh, that's such good conversation. But I'll tell you what often happened. School starts again. Work starts again. Life starts again. And we drift. And we drift right back to where we started. Why? No roots. Not yet. And so we're back with that same boyfriend or girlfriend. We're back in a circle of friends that is nourishing on us a diet that will kill Christ in us instead of rooting us in Christ. And I'm not knocking, actually, the idea of retreat and camping. I, I will go to my grave saying that is the best investment we make in the lives of our young people. But I'm just recognizing that 
that sometimes the result of those things is a shallow root system. And until we can walk with people and get it down deep, we are still prone to being blown over and blown apart. So the first part of the verse, in verse 6, Paul breaks it up into these two parts. He says, just as you received Christ, Jesus Christ, as Lord, there is a moment of receiving. There is that conversion moment where we take on the identity as a follower of Jesus, those amazing, life-altering moments, and we, we name them, we celebrate them, baptism, joy. But, but Paul doesn't stop there. The second part, verse 7, he goes on to say, continue to live your lives, how? Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. We don't just convert to a religion, not just a momentary decision. That's just the beginning. We are meant to continue to live in him, in the soil of God, being built up, nourished, rooted, and established. Our roots are meant to go deeper and deeper. What sometimes happens, particularly in the modern world in the West, is that being a follower of Jesus just becomes another layer of the culture in which we live. It's a cultural identity. It's not the very pivotal source of, of spiritual nourishment that it's meant to be. And so we identify as Christian, and we show up in the places that Christians sometimes go, and we do the things that Christians sometimes do, but the roots themselves are never deep. And they're so shallow that we feel like we're knocked around all the time in the world and we fall victim to every new idea that comes down the pipeline. Why? Because when the space for truth is not filled with Jesus, there is a vacuum that anything else in the world will be happy to occupy. Here's the thing about root growth. It's slow. It takes time. It's not instant. Everything in our culture values instancy. Every eight seconds, another rush, another rush, another rush. It doesn't work that way with spiritual growth. The roots grow deeper through consistent practice, things that we do over and over again. That's why we spend so much time at MCBC talking about spiritual practices. What is it that we do, that we do regularly? What is the, the great horticultural work of rooting ourselves in Christ? We talk about it in EHS, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which is just really kind of good language that we use to sneak spiritual disciplines into your lives. Did you notice that? We snuck them in there, and you loved it enough that we can't stop offering that course. Every time we offer it, it fills up. We do it in alpha. We do it in shape. Practices like discernment and prayer and slowing down and listening and fasting and waiting on God, reading and reveling in God's word. It's those things that develop a root system. And maybe some of you are thinking, there's new faces here this morning, most weeks. There's, maybe there's faces that have been here a little while and you're still wondering, well, I don't even know where to start. How, how do I do this? Where do I start? What do I do? What's the pace? 
How do I schedule the practices into my day? Well, guess what, church? MCBC is filled with small group leaders and pastors and elders, and they would be giddy with excitement if you caught them on the way out the door and say, hey, can you help me with some of this? These spiritual practices, this this getting rooted in Christ, that's their job. That's why we pay them the big dollars. (laughs) They're here to help us all grow spiritually. Use them as a resource. They're here for you. They are God's gift to you so that you can be rooted in Christ and not be easily deceived. After the defeats of World War I, Germany faced uh, an appalling economic depression. German people were despondent. They were desperate for anything they could hold on to, a hope, some kind of renewal. And for many people, it seemed like their prayers at last were answered. When a leader appeared, he had charisma, he had passion, he had a strategy to restore Germany to a a place that they would be proud of. And first in line among his champions, those who believed in him, were church leaders and pastors. Listen to some of the things that they wrote. One pastor said, the time is fulfilled for the German people in Hitler. It's because of Hitler that Christ, the great helper and redeemer, has now become effective among us. Hitler is a way of the spirit, is the will of God, is here for the German people to enter into the reality of Christ. And the other pastor said simply this, Christ has come to us afresh in Adolf Hitler. You see why deceit is so insidious and why having a root structure that runs deep is so important. Hitler was brilliant. Diabolical, maniacal, but clearly brilliant. And his ability to deceive and deceive a nation en masse was eerie. There was a pastor living in Germany, a pastor theologian, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, along with a, a few other deeply rooted, very wise, and incredibly courageous pastors. They formed a group called the Confessing Church. And they spoke publicly about their allegiance to Jesus and how it was far more important to them than the allegiance to any nation or any leader. They publicly called out all of the hateful rhetoric and the actions of their leader. Now imagine for a second how hard this would be for them as they watched their friends, their family, the entire nation swept up in a movement that they believed deep inside was such a great evil that it could not stand. It it must have taken all of their conviction, all of their bravery, just to get up in the morning and walk out on the streets and continue to be what God had called them to be. Their roots were deep and their roots were strong. Bonhoeffer was the key person in many of the resistance efforts. His, His major role was in rescuing Jewish people. And because of his resistance in 1943, a black Mercedes pulled up to his home and two, two officers got out and they took him to prison. He spent two years in jail, continuing to write, continuing to mentor other young pastors and make sure that they are rooted in what mattered. 
And eventually in 1945, with six other resistors, he was sentenced to death by hanging. The doctor in the facility witnessed the event, and this is what he wrote. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was deeply moved by the way that this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. And at the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued a few seconds later. And in the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have never seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. That's the witness in the account of someone established in Christ and Christ alone. When everyone else around led astray and deceived, he remained rooted and resolute and firm. It's easy to hear the story and think, well, if I were there, I would have been with Bonhoeffer. I certainly wouldn't have been in the Hitler camp. Are you sure? Almost all of the state churches were, and their leaders, and their members. Are you sure? There are philosophies and ideas and opinions everywhere, and they are so compelling. They are so tempting. Will we be, can we be the ones who are nourished and grounded and rooted so deeply in Christ that we can be resolute and firm? Or are we the shallow-rooted crowd who will get blown over Next time a mighty wave of evil comes rushing through the world. My hope, my prayer for us, you and I, is that we will find ways to stay rooted, find nourishment in the word of God, in solitude, in prayer, grounded through daily spiritual practices. That you would be, boy, that beautiful image described in Psalm 1, like a tree planted firmly by streams of living water. That's my hope. Can we pray for that hope? Will you join me? Jesus, thank you for for these words from your word and how relevant they are for us today. Everywhere we go, Lord, we're tempted, we're persuaded, we're influenced. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here in the room and those watching us online that we would be the kind of people who, who are so well nourished by you, so deeply planted in you, that we can discern truth from deceit. And then, Jesus, I pray, I pray as we go about this week that you could show us the places in our lives where we can draw closer to you. Show us all the ways we can be nourished by you. And then, church, if I could, I want to pray these words that Bonhoeffer left for us in one of his prison diaries. O Holy Spirit, give me faith that will protect me from despair, from passion, and from vice. Give me such love for God and men as will blot out all other hatred and bitterness. Give me the hope that will deliver me from fear 
and faint-heartedness. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.